All right, question number one. Oh, that's the finger I want up there, back there. We keep track of the questions when I remember to plug in the question counter. And today's first question is from Tree 99 who asks, my father recently died and I don't think he was a true Christian. I've been a Christian for seven months and I didn't share the gospel with him. Would things have gone differently if I did? And let's just start off with a heart-wrenching and very challenging, very tough question. Um, let me let me just dig into this. This is how some people would answer the question, and I'm gonna I'm gonna be very open with you, Pink Tree. I can't give you obviously a definitive answer on what would have happened had you done something. Obviously, I I don't know what would have happened, but here's how some would answer the question. And while I think it's somewhat heartwarming and helpful, I don't know if it's entirely accurate and biblical. So some would say, um, look, everyone who will be saved will be saved. And your your lack of sharing the gospel with that person made no difference whatsoever in their life. Because if they were going to get saved, they, were, they would get saved. Um, now, I, I'm not of that persuasion to say that. And I know that's kind of <clears throat> an uncomfortable thing to hold to for me to say that I don't agree with that statement. But I think that foreknowledge, God's foreknowledge is factored into his election. And so when he chooses us, one of the things that's mixed in there is his knowledge of who will choose him. So I think that we actually make real choices in life that really make a difference. And that when we witness and don't witness that that can actually impact whether someone is really saved or not. I think that's a really obvious thing, but I also think it's biblical. I think that there's a biblical precedence, but that wouldn't answer your question. That would just leave you with a lump in your throat and with this sense of like, Oh gosh, so maybe, so let me talk to you about some more issues. Okay. Um, in Matthew eleven twenty one, we have Jesus that kind of supports my point a little bit here. Matthew eleven twenty one. Here's the passage: Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you have been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Now, why do I quote this verse in relation to your question? Because this is Jesus presenting a hypothetical to a group of cities. So the Chorazin and Bethsaida are cities in Galilee. This is an area where Jesus did all his miracles or many of his miracles in that area. And he preached the gospel and he like, you know, the Messiah was there present showing them who he was, gr glorious miracles and everything. Then he tells them, you guys are in a, lo a lot of trouble. You're in judgment. And then he gives them this hypothetical because if I had done this stuff in Sodom and Gomorrah, or in Tyre and Sidon, in this case, excuse me, two other cities. He, he later talks about so Sodom and Gomorrah as well, down a couple verses. But in Tyre and Sidon, then they would have repented. These are, these are ancient cities. Jesus didn't physically go to those cities. They had, not that they had no one preaching to them, because they had prophets who went to them. But if they had this next level of these miracles, they would have repented. Now, some say Jesus doesn't mean it like really they would have repented. But I, I'm inclined to think he does that there's a scenario where they would have repented. Now, you can get into the debates about, well, then why didn't he go to Tyre and Sidon? Well, then, but then he wouldn't have come in the first century. So there's, it, that would be like the snowball, this sort of butterfly effect thing, causing a bunch of other problems. The point I want to make is that I think our actions really do matter. And I think that the things that we do and don't do and the people we share the gospel with and don't share the gospel with, I think it actually does make a difference. A difference, but it's not the only difference. And this is where I want you, I want you to really, hopefully you really take this in. Luke chapter 16, verse 31. This is talking to people, Jesus giving another sort of um, hypothetical about people that helps balance this out. So we don't think that everyone's salvation depends solely upon us who are preaching the gospel because that's not the case. He said to him, 
If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Now, this is, of course, in Jesus's parable of Lazarus and the rich man. And Lazarus dies and the rich man's like, hey, Abraham, send Lazarus back up to, to warn my family about the judgment that, that they're going to befall, that they'll experience what I'm getting. And he says, look, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't be convinced if someone rises from the dead. Now, this is a different... This is a different situation where Jesus is saying, you know, this is like the other side of the coin. Hey, don't act like you didn't get saved just because you didn't have enough people preaching at you. You didn't listen to the, in this case, you didn't listen to Moses and the prophets. You didn't listen to what God had already revealed. And that's why you would not have listened had Jesus showed up or had, had you seen him risen from the dead. What I'm going to suggest here is that it's complicated and that humans are just complicated people. Is it possible that your dad would have given his life to Christ had you shared the gospel with him. It's possible, but is it guaranteed? No. And is it the only thing your dad is accountable for? Well, no, actually your dad is accountable for his entire life. Not what he, what you didn't tell him, but what others did tell him and what the Holy Spirit revealed to him and what he saw in creation. God judges us based on what we know, not based on what we don't know. That's why when Jesus, you know, says, woe to you, Chorazin and Bethsaida, the two cities we talked about, that's why Jesus, he gives them that warning. And then later he says that they're going to get judged worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. See, Sodom and Gomorrah didn't repent. Tyre and Sidon didn't repent. Neither did Chorazin and Bethsaida. They didn't repent. But they get worse judgment because they had much greater revelation. So you don't get judged for never hearing about Jesus if that was, say, your dad's situation. Uh, it, it's implied differently because it's like you say, I'm not convinced he was a real Christian. Since, since that's the scenario for you, my counsel to you is this. Don't go there. You don't have the, apparently you don't have the information to know whether he was legitimately a Christian or not. And, and you don't need to make that decision. Nor do you need to start doing the blame game where you're like, well, well if I had done this, then he would be, look, he's not accountable for what you, and, you did and didn't do. He's accountable for what God did in his life. So I know these are, these are touchy subjects that come close to our hearts. In the end of it all, my counsel is trust God. He is good. He never judges unfairly. He never holds people accountable for things they didn't know. He only holds people accountable for what they did know. And he gives everyone an opportunity, I think, to know the truth about God in some way or another. So that's the first question. We're going to go to question number two right now. Before we do that, let me just tell you guys what we're doing. I'm Mike Winger, and this is 20 Questions. I take I do this every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific time. That's in California time. And we uh, we take questions, and I try to answer it from a biblical perspective. My goal is to think biblically about everything. My, my desire is to find others who want to think the same way, who want to say, hey, let's work this through. Do we have biblical clarity we can bring? Such as a tough question I just took, offering sort of two different perspectives and saying these are both accurate making our application of the situation rather complicated. But let's go to question number two. This is from Katie's online name, who says, I'm a Christian who is married to a non-practicing Mormon who still bases his beliefs on LDS doctrine. I think I want to go into apologetics, largely inspired by you. That's awesome. But I don't think my husband will approve. I also feel called to evangelize my Mormon in-laws, but I struggle to get past their feelings-based testimony and their beliefs about who Jesus is and salvation. Any advice on my apologetic aspirations and my specific circumstances and on the best way to surmount these LDS hurdles? Thanks so much. You are such a blessing. Thank you, Katie's online name, <laughs> which I wonder what your real, your not online name might be. Um, so the, uh, I think there's a principle here in, in honoring your husband. And that is, you know, wives honor your husband as, the, as to the Lord. 
children obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. There's always that little caveat about it being in the Lord or as unto the Lord. The reason for the caveat is because whenever obedience to God is something that means you know, conflicts with honoring that person or with obeying them or doing what they want, you always follow God instead. That is the the biblical principle is I rebel against human authority or, or people's roles in my life. I only rebel against that when obedience to God requires my rebellion against them. That gives us like a real balance as Christians. So we don't have a rebellious spirit. I'm not looking for opportunities to rebel. None of that kind of thing. But it's just like, hey, um, I'm going to pay my taxes. I'm going to be a good citizen. But the minute the world tells me you can't preach the gospel of Christ, I'm like, oh, well, I'm going to do that anyways. Because that's obedience to Jesus. And that's this is I obey Jesus. In fact, I only obey you because I see the authority of God behind you. And when you're going against him, I'm not going to follow you in that. That being said, you can have a completely loving and submissive and kind and gracious attitude towards your husband while doing some things he does not approve of because you believe they honor Christ. So if you want to go into apologetics and you think this is a good and godly way to serve the Lord and you like this is, I'm not making the decision for you, but if that's where you're like, I feel that I should do this to honor God, then whether your husband approves isn't the most important thing here. That's challenging, right? But obedience to God, obedience to Jesus. This is where Jesus, he, he, he says like, let me give you, um, I remember sharing this scripture with a family member one time and they, they said, Jesus never said that. I got halfway through reading the verse and they went, Jesus never said that, but he did. Uh, let me read it. Now, great crowds accompanied him and he turned and said to them, this is in Luke 14, 25, and I'm reading in verse 26. Now, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife, in your case, and husband, and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. This whole idea of hate, um, Jesus definitely, let me give you a a short explanation to this because I know I'm going to cover a bunch of questions today. We've got 20 questions we're doing. Short explanation is this. The word hate doesn't always mean emotional hatred. Um, Sometimes it's used, even in scripture, Loving and hating is used as a way of describing, I choose you, not you. When I'm put between two people, I choose you, not you. So when God loved Esau, uh, loved Jacob, hated Esau in Romans, I think that's a language of choosing. Uh, Love meaning choice, hate meaning not choosing the other. When he says, if you don't hate your own father and mother, I think he means, if you don't choose me over all others in your life, then you can't be my disciple. Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, I have to be your all in all. I've got to be the whole thing to you. Jesus is God. And if he is, if we, if we treat him as like a, a good guide, a nice teacher, that doesn't work for him. Like he wants our total loving submission to Christ above all others. And so that's why the cry of the early church is Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord of all. So here, if obedience to Jesus in your life means witnessing to family members, means learning apologetics and theology because you're in the in the middle of it, right? And, and you need this information in order to, to share with others and to be part of your own witnessing and sharing of the gospel. Then I think go for it, but be as gracious as possible. Husband, I, I love you. I don't want to hurt you. I just, I have to do what I think God wants me to do. And um, you said you also feel um, called, but you're dealing with their feelings-based testimony. That is one of the biggest challenges I've had with Mormons is dealing with the fact that in many Mormons, real like, okay, maybe not in the Mormon theology, but in the real life Mormon experience, when you just talk to a bunch of Mormons, 
you find that a lot of their beliefs are based on feelings. And it is reinforced because they, the burning in the bosom, that whole kind of thing is kind of taught as if it were like a feeling experience and a purely emotional kind of sensation. Um, what I would do with them is I would take them, to, take them to scriptures that warn about the heart. So Jeremiah that says, um, you know, the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And scriptures that warn us about following our hearts. Jeremiah that talks about how false prophets, they prophesied from their own hearts. And in, in specifically, he says, like, they think they have a word from me, but they're really prophesying the deceit of their own heart. So when you show them these consistently in scripture, that your heart isn't the best guide, God's word is the best guide, that might be a way to approach that. I hope that helps. Katie's online name. All right, let's take the next question. Number three, this is from Faith Marie. Faith Marie says, hi, Pastor Mike. I was wondering, how do you remember scripture? I will read in the morning and by the the time of night or the next day, um, I forget what I re- what I read. I know where to meditate on it, but how do we do this? So Faith, um, I don't usually focus on memorizing scripture. Uh, not that that's not a great thing. Sometimes I feel like I should do that more. Okay, I think that there's huge value in memorizing scripture. So me, don't follow me as your example here. <laughs> I probably should memorize scripture more. But what I tend to do is I tend to actually just study scripture and then I end up remembering it like on accident. And so uh, an example of this is hobbyists. Um, people who are just are, are nerds about a specific topic, you end up memorizing tons of info about that area of nerd nerdiness that, uh, that others are like, how do you even remember all that? And the truth is you remember it because you, not just because you love it, that's part of it, you love it, but you also spend so much time on it that you just automatically remember it. So there's times where I would study a passage for like, you know, 15 hours and then I go teach it that Sunday. And then I'm like practically memorizing this, this passage of scripture because I've just spent so much time looking at it, thinking about it, going over it again and again and again. That I think is a great way to meditate and memorize scripture. You read something in the morning. If you haven't thought about it through the day, there's a good chance you won't remember it in the evening. But if you read it in the morning and then maybe you read it again at lunch and between morning and lunch, you're just meditating on it. Like whenever you have a little bit of free time, you're just kind of like casually thinking about it. Think of it as a hobby that meditating on the Bible is like your little side hobby. It's just for fun. You're going to nerd out on scripture. So you read it. And so like, say you take this cost of discipleship. Like if anyone comes to me and doesn't hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes. And even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And you, and you think of this verse, then you're thinking about it as you, as you encounter maybe your wife or children or your mother or, or somebody that day. And you're thinking, wow, how powerful that Jesus used it. So you're meditating on it. At lunch, you read it again. And because you've been meditating on it, you may notice different things. So th- this is what I'm going to recommend. The more time you spend in a particular scripture, the more it's going to be committed to your memory and not just memory because anybody can just memorize and quote a scripture, but it'll be committed to your heart because you will have meditated on it, you know? So that's um, scripture meditation causes scripture memory or memorization. Look, it's even, I can, I can be even more pastoral here. Scripture meditation causes scripture memorization. Next question. Um, Scott Craig, I find it very difficult to pray for the current administration. I know they need it desperately. How do I overcome this struggle? Um, so let me actually take you to scripture and give you some guidance that a lot of people don't notice. Um, I think it's in first Timothy three. No, where is, where the scripture, Paul's telling us to pray. Um, is it Titus? Um, 
Let me find it real quick. Just a moment. No, it's 1 Timothy 2. Okay. 1 Timothy 2. And in this passage, what we're going to read is the instruction we have on praying for leaders. All right. Here we go. Therefore, I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, and intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. And then he's going to describe what kinds of men. For kings and all who are in authority. Okay, so here's where you might get like, I know I should be praying for the administration, like the president, the vice president, the, the Congress, and, um, and everybody involved in, in, you know, different governmental positions. But look at the purpose of the prayers. It's interesting that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. So the prayer, it seems, at least part of the reason to pray, not the only reason, part of the reason to pray for those who are in leadership is that they might make good choices so that the people under their leadership can live quiet and peaceful lives in godliness and reverence. Lord, I pray that you help our president and vice president and our Congress, right? That, that you help the, the Senate and the House of Representatives to make choices that will allow us to live in quiet and peaceful lives in godliness and reverence, to not restrict our religious freedoms, to to not uh, cause oppression, to, to basically clears a way for people to live good lives. That would be a focus of prayer. So there's also prayers for their, them to be saved, for them to be converted. And that's also important to pray. But I think it's interesting that when they're brought up specifically here in 1 Timothy 2, it seems to be prayers because these people influence everyone. So we're praying for all people. Let's pray for the leaders of all people, that people would be blessed. God, please help our country, that we as a people would be helped to be able to live godly lives. So that's that's an interesting angle of prayer. You can pray that. You can pray for the current administration that they make better choices and good godly decisions for people. Um, yeah. Now, on the other hand, Scott, if there is bitterness in your heart towards them, what I would encourage you to do is model um, the early church who, who, like with Jesus, praying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Like there's, there needs to be an attitude in my heart as a Christian of gracious love, even towards those who may have earned my bitterness, because that's God's attitude towards me. Gracious love, even towards me who has earned his bitterness. And that's very important to do. One of the ways we do this is we commit judgment to the Lord. Okay. So God is going to deal with all leaders and every decision they make and every president of the country we've ever had will one day stand before God and be judged according to his holiness and goodness and according to the truth of Christ. Knowing that should give you the peace to say, you know what, Lord, I'm going to be gracious and kind. They will stand before you. I'm not their judge. I don't have to have any angst about any of this stuff. You're going to deal with it, Lord. Let me just have a right and godly Christian attitude. That would be my advice on uh, on that one. I sure hope it helps. K, um, number five, Jay Kane has a question. Is deliverance for today? Is deliverance for today? Should we be praying for each other to be set free from demonic bondage in our lives, along with seeking medical assistance and counseling where needed? Uh, let me kind of approach this from the back. So first off, should we seek counseling where needed? Um, absolutely. Um, I asked a question on Facebook. I'm not trying to call anybody out. I just think that real life examples help us learn. I asked a question on Facebook the other day, um, asking for your guys' counsel on my on my uh, Mike Winger Facebook page. And a lot of people gave different advice. And now Proverbs says there's wisdom in a multitude of counselors, but one person or maybe a couple replied, you know, Mike, you really should be asking God, not us. And that's, I think, I think it's well-intentioned, but I think that it's very unwise to think that asking people 
is like the other option of asking God, either God or people. Whereas scripture, Proverbs, like tells us there's wisdom in a multitude of counselors, that it's good to have wisdom to seek. I mean, why does why is one of the things the Holy Spirit gives us a word of wisdom if we aren't supposed to go to each other for wisdom on things? So that I think that's a good godly thing. Of course, you go to people for wisdom. We don't pick God or people. You pray, you seek the Lord, and you get counsel, and you make a choice. Um, so yeah, we should get counsel where needed. Um, medical assistant, absolutely. Medical assistant is a great thing. It's a very good thing. I think there's actually a biblical case that can be made for using medicine. There is. There's also the dangers of the abuse of medicine. So it's a mixed bag, but medical assistance, good. Now, what about being free from demonic bondage? That is a very loaded statement, demonic bondage, because demonic bondage could be like actually some kind of demonic attack in a person's life that's legit, or it could be blaming demons for every wrong thing you do and think. And that's the one that I'm more worried about. Because that's what I've been exposed to more. Or at least I've seen floating around sort of in, in, in like some places. And so what I want to say is this. Um, alcoholism, I don't have any reason to think it's a demon. Adultery, not a demon. Homosexual behavior, not a demon. The Bible treats these like sins and there are sins that come from somewhere other than demons. So let me take you to a couple places. This is where I say demonic bondage can be a problem. So this is the part I want to push back. There can be real demonic attacks in people's lives and we should definitely seek for deliverance, prayer, um, fasting, going, gathering elders. I mean, we should be doing those things if, if that's real. But the problem is there's a lot of false positives, a lot of pushing my issues onto demons and then trying to cast demons out and creating all kinds of weird weird moments in people's lives but let's look at what james says in james chapter one look at a couple scriptures here if i can remember because i just cataloged a couple and if i can remember them as we go um james chapter one verse 12 blessed is the man who endures temptation for when he's been approved he'll receive the crown of life which the lord's promised to those who who love him let no one say let no one say when he's tempted i'm tempted by god for god cannot be tempted by evil nor does he himself tempt anyone okay so god's not causing your, you to be tempted but, and then this is where I would expect him to say, but you have these sin issues in your life because you have demonic bondage going on. You're angry at your wife and you keep yelling at her and you can't stop cussing at her because of a, a demon of, of rage, a demon of bitterness, a demon of anger. I think that is not biblical. I think that that's gotten its root for various reasons in the church and we need to like exercise it. <laughs> so verse 14, he says, each one is tempted when? When he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Look, when I sin, it's because something in me wanted to sin. Like sin isn't a demonic bondage. Sin is a result of my sinful desires. Satan may tempt in a sense, but he only accesses the things that are in us that we want that are wicked in the first place. Sin is always a problem with me when I commit sin. I can't blame it on an external source. In Galatians... Um, we have other examples of this. So walk in the spirit and you'll not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Now the spirit is contra contrasted with the flesh in this case, the spirit being, being the, 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 the labor and the work of the Holy spirit in my life. And then if I walk in the spirit, then I'm going to be doing good things. But if the flesh, it's not a demon, it's my flesh that leads to these other things. So let's, let's look at the list of things that come from the flesh. And I forgive me if, um, 
uh, Jay Kane, if this is not what you were thinking when you said demonic bondage, I have to kind of read between the lines a little bit on questions. So I, I hope this lands. Um, for this, for the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. So there's like desires within me against, against the spirit, but they're not demonic. They're just my flesh. And these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you're led by the spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Now all these things, they're works of the flesh. They come from where my flesh, right? Adultery. So it's not a demon of adultery. It's me. Fornication. It's not a demon of fornication. That's just me wanting to fornicate. Uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry is even worship of demons, but it's coming from my flesh. I'm, a demon's not making me do it. I'm doing it myself. Sorcery. That involves dark spiritual things, but it's coming from my flesh as well. So there's always some self-issue. I can't just put my sin on a, on a demonic thing, even if there's demonic things involved. Hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. And he goes on. All this stuff, there's the flesh there. And, and that's the focus I want to have. The Christian battle is... It, it, the first and primary battle every Christian faces is internal dying to yourself. And then external, there's these, there's these things about principalities and powers and things like that that are real, that we need to deal with. But they never absolve me of dying to my own flesh. So, um, you know, demonic alcohol you know, alcoholism is not a thing. Uh, so, if, so that's what I mean. My concern with being free from demonic bondage is that we first make sure it is actually demonic bondage and not something else. We're going to go to question number six, but before we do that, there are no more questions today. This is, we've got our full 20, full list of 20 questions. We, I do 20 each Friday. I'm sorry. I can't get to all of them. Like I, I am, it's just not physically possible, but here's number six, joyful blessings. How literally should we follow the qualifications for pastors and elders in 1 Timothy and Titus? Oh, man, I've actually given this some thought because real life is not ideal. <laughs> and, and when you're looking around and your church, especially smaller churches, and they're looking around and they're like, we need a leader, they're often slim pickings. And so how strictly do we take these very strict things. Okay. So first Timothy three, here's the chapter I went to earlier, but now, now I'm doing it on purpose. Um, qualifications of overseers. This is a faithful saying. If a man desires, let's look at what these qualifications are. And we'll see why this is challenging. If a man desires the position of a bishop, a bishop, a bishop is an elder, uh, who, who teaches an elder in the church. Um, uh, basically modern, we usually use the term pastor to talk about somebody who's in this position. Um, and that's fine. So bishop, though it has nothing to do with say like Roman Catholic has a special term for bishop or people who have like bishops are over many churches and pastors are over single churches. That's all just made up hogwash. That's not biblical. Okay. So um, not that there can't be someone who's over multiple churches. I'm saying that it doesn't tie itself to the term. So the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. A bishop then must be blameless. That means nobody can, can come up and say, this guy has this problem. He has this like real like character issue. So there's no, you know, he has that good, good reputation. Um, the husband of one wife, one wife. Okay. So now there's a debate on whether that means he can never be divorced or if, if it's against polygamy. And, um, I actually talk about that in another video. I'll just reference you just, you'll have to look that up. Uh, but he's also temperate, sober-minded of, of good behavior, hospitable, there's got to be hospitable. So like pastors should be kind of be not just people persons, like they make you happy when you, but rather they're, they're, they're giving, they, they cater to others needs. This is a natural thing that they do. They're able to teach. 
They have to be able to teach. That's required. That's a tough one sometimes. Not given to wine. This doesn't mean they can't drink at all, but they can't be given to wine. They can't be given over to right? That's which is a really interesting way it's phrased. Not violent, not greedy for money. That's a big deal. Gentle, not quarrelsome. Are they quarrelsome? Do they tend to get into arguments all the time? They're, they bicker and argue and they create division because they have this staunch and rude attitude about things. Are they covetous? One who rules, and out here it gets even harder. He rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. He He's like a good dad who has control of his home. His home's not chaos. Oh, wow. Okay. For if a man does not know how uh, to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Now, so th- in other words, there's an example there. Like if you can't take care of your family, you know, this is a cool thing. Side note, that ministry towards the church, it, it seems to be a priority to first have ministry towards your home. You're honoring God in your home first. And there are some people who use ministry or their jobs or their careers, and they do really good in their job or their career or their ministry as a way of just ignoring the fact that at home, they're totally failing. That is that is that is the wrong priority. Like I would rather fail outside the home than inside the home. Like this is the number one priority. It's also a lot more difficult than succeeding in business. Anyway, not a novice. Okay, he can't be a newbie. Like if you're if you've been saved for two years, like you should not be a pastor. Like, wait, be patient. And if you can't be patient, you just don't understand why you have to be patient. Chat disconnected. Yeah. Man, something's going on with the internet. So I'm just slowing down a bit. I may come back and delete this section if there's like a big issue here. Oh yeah, we're having problems. <laughs> it's down. Oh man. Okay, well, I'm going to, we'll see what I'll do. Maybe what I'll do is I'll upload, I'll, I'll figure something out, but just be watching my channel for how I handle this later. I'm going to go ahead and keep going through the questions because I have all 20 and maybe this will be uploaded as a separate video. If you're watching this video later, maybe this is my, my second half thrown up because I simply ran out of internet. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that got really bad really quick. Okay. All right. So, um, uh, yeah, well, how strict do we take this? How strict do we take all these, these demands for pastoral leaders? And the answer is we're supposed to take it like that. These are the qualifications. Like this is just, this is how it is. Now, what if literally nobody matches that description that you know? Then I think I would go with the best option I had. But because you need leaders, you need people to serve and maybe even make them temporary leaders as we continue to pursue and look for someone who has these better qualifications. Maybe that's like a good middle ground. Like, hey, you're sort of the interim person um, until we can find someone who's, who is fully qualified to, to meet this position. That might be a good a good um, balance. All right, we'll go to question seven. Susie Ann Stapper says, is it okay for a Christian to marry a non-Christian, like a Buddhist, atheist, or Muslim? And what if they already have children? How would you counsel the Christian? May God bless you and your wife. Um, yeah, this is a, I'm really glad you're asking this question. Susie, before I answer it, I want to ask you, the whole audience, to really seriously consider one thing. Are you willing to follow what God says on this topic? Because to me, the will of God, I only want what you want, is the biggest single issue in this whole thing. I've seen many Christians go down the road of partnering, um, marrying people that they probably never should have because they simply 
it didn't matter what scripture said. There was such a desire. I want what I want. And somebody, somebody tell me how to reinterpret these verses. So let me go to the scripture that actually talks about it. Um, it's in first Corinthians and it talks about being, um, unequally yoked. And many of you are familiar with this passage. So first, uh, second Corinthians, sorry, second Corinthians six fourteen. Here we go. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Now a, a yoke, this is an old school farming analogy. The, the analogy is that of a, of a, the yoke is, is like a, a piece of wood that's placed pieces of wood that are placed on an ox or some animal and he's yoked or attached to another animal so they could pull plows or, or, or cart together. They're yoked together so they could work together. So the yoke here is talking, I think about, um, marriage and sexual intimacy. So don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers for what part partnership has righteousness with lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness, what accord has Christ with Belial or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols for we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord and touch no unclean thing. Now we can, we can read on, but I think the context of this is second Corinthians six. He's talking here about ultimately who are you connecting yourself to and the yoking of marriage. That is probably the number one biggest way in which you could yoke yourself with somebody is you get married. Now the biblical teaching on this without getting into a lot of detail, I think is pretty clear. Christians are not to marry non-believers. Now that doesn't mean just atheists who believe nothing or believe you know, in no God, but it means people who are not following Christ, people who don't believe in and truly, truly believe in Jesus Christ, right? They don't hold the gospel. That's the rule for Christians. Now, if you're already married to a non-believer, you're counseled in uh, 1 Corinthians 7, stay married and honor the Lord in that marriage. First Peter even talks about it. He's like, stay there. So we're not counseling divorce here. What we're doing is we're saying, don't start that marriage. But if it's, if it's begun, or if you did it mistakenly in the past, now honor God. This is not your excuse for divorce. Honor God, seek to bless the Lord, have a wonderful, have the best marriage you possibly can right now. But yeah, it's not okay for a Christian to marry a non-Christian, like a Buddhist, atheist, or Muslim. Like, it's definitely not. And um, what if they already have children? I, I mean, I'm assuming you mean they they have kids together, but they're not married. Um, well, they shouldn't have had kids together. I mean, that's a complicated and tough situation. I feel like I might counsel them. Like, like at that point, that, that marriage might be like you're just solidifying something that you've already done. Maybe it would be a good idea in that scenario. If, if like, say you and a Buddhist had kids already, may, maybe there's a scenario there where marriage is a good idea. That's a tough one. I'd have to really, really think about that and listen to hours of people telling me their life story before I could give counsel. So I hope that the um, stream is better now, maybe, possibly. All right. Don't know what happened there. We're going to go to question eight. Hannah Butterfield says, does Luke 20 verses 27 through 36 teach that people who are married on earth won't be married anymore in heaven. I feel sad that my husband and I might not be together still in heaven. Thanks for all your work. Hannah, totally understand this. Look, I'm married now for 11 years and I, um, get it. <laughs> like, like, you know, the, 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 the idea of us not having our special relationship would just be like the weirdest thing. There's like a, yeah, it's just weird. That would be strange. But here's what Jesus says. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there's a resurrection. And they ask him this weird riddle. 
I'll summarize it. Basically, they're like, teacher, this woman, she married seven different guys. Whose husband is she going to be in the afterlife? And they're trying to say that, therefore, there is no there is no real afterlife. Ha ha, here's a tricky question about the resurrection, and you can't answer it, so therefore, there is no resurrection. And then Jesus answers them and says, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, this age, this time we're in now. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age, that's the resurrection, and to the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage. That's interesting. Now, you might say, so you don't marry in the afterlife or in the new, I say afterlife, but that makes you think of a disembodied state. Jesus is talking about the final state, like we're all resurrected. We have a new heaven and new earth. Revelation, the end of Revelation talks about this. He's like, in that state, you could say in that state, like we're not going to have additional marriages. If you die single, you stay single. But that's not the context. Jesus is actually saying this in response to which husband that she did have in, in life will she have in the resurrection. And he's just like, there won't be, that. that's a non-question. There's no marriage. There's no giving in marriage. They cannot die anymore because they're equal to angels and they're sons of God being the sons of the resurrection. Uh, then he goes on and builds another really cool Old Testament biblical case for um, for the resurrection and the afterlife. Now, um, what am I going to think of this as a, as, a, as, a, as a man who's married and who loves my wife? Does that mean like we go, we, we, we're unmarried? Like in the resurrection, we're no longer connected. We're unmarried. So like we don't have this deep connection that we've, we've been living in and enjoying and building for years. No, I don't think so. I think that we're not married. That doesn't mean we don't love each other. It doesn't mean we're not incredibly close. Um, I think the implication is that there isn't going to be like sexual relations in the resurrection. I'm just being speaking bluntly here for everybody. I don't think that that's going to be part of the new order of things. But I would suppose that we're probably not going to have desires for that either. But we'll have this beautiful, intimate fellowship. This is a theme in, 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 in Revelation. This is a theme throughout the scriptures that human unity and love is better in the resurrection or in the new life than it is now. I don't think I'll be married to my wife, but I think we'll be closer than ever. We won't have marriage, typical human marriage, but I think we'll have closeness and love and intimacy and fellowship. I just don't think it'll be like sexual in that nature. I mean, some people think that that will be. I think that that's probably not the case. Um, that's where he's like, they're like the angels. Okay. So I think that we're not going to be experiencing that kind of stuff. So I think, yeah, we should probably hold to that. But Closeness, intimacy, yes. You will not lose the love and the fellowship and the and the, the the connection the two of you have. It'll just be different. Now, why is it that we wouldn't just call it marriage? Well, maybe partly because there isn't the the function of like continuing to have kids, continuing to like um, uh, be together intimately, physically in that sense. But also possibly because there won't be the limits of relationship. You won't have just this one person who you're super close with. But there'll be such a closeness across a community of people that there wouldn't be the need for exclusivity in that sense either. In other words, I think we're closer, not further apart. And I hope that that helps. I just muted my mic to uh, cough briefly there. Let's go to question number nine. This is from Dan, spelled D-A-A-N. In my church, Holy Communion is postponed because of the measures surrounding COVID, drinking from one cup is not possible. To justify this, they use Joshua 5, 1 through 8 is this biblical reasoning. Boy, there's a lot to unpack there. But let's just look at Joshua 5 first, and then we'll talk. 
as I take a drink from my Bible Thinker mug, which you can get your own Bible Thinker mug. And I'm not making a penny off of it. But for the month of June, for any, each month I'm probably going to pick different ministries. But for the month of June, we're going to take $5 from every mug. The, most of it goes to the potter who makes it, which is great. That's his business. It's how he makes his living. Um, and there's links down below to the to the mugs. But we'll take 5 bucks from each mug, and I'm going to donate them to uh, George. Jordanian ref actually there's Syrian refugees who came to Jordan and they're living there and they're under a lot of oppression and a lot of poverty extreme poverty right now so we're going to be giving that money to a ministry that's helping support them and it won't be a whole lot but it'll be something and it'll be something good so you can check that out if you like um Joshua 5 1 let me take my drink here it says as soon as all the kings of the Amorites <clears throat> who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. And uh, verse two, <clears throat> at that time, the Lord said to jo Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeoth. They did this because obviously they weren't already circumcising everybody. They weren't really following the commands they've been given. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males out of the people um, who came out of Egypt, all the men of war had died in the wilderness on the way after they come out of Egypt. Though all the people who came out had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give to us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So it was <clears throat> their children whom he raised up in their place that Joshua was circumcised for they were uncircumcised because they'd not been circumcised on the way. And you said verse eight as well. <clears throat> when the circumcision circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. And the Lord said to Joshua today, I've rolled away their approach and he had, you know, he's going to send them all out. Um, okay. Now I'm having a hard time even thinking of how, a church is using this to relate to the issue of communion during COVID. So let me try to unpack, like, what is going on here? So you say, in my church, Holy Communion is postponed because of the measures surrounding COVID. Okay, I understand that. Drinking from one cup is not possible, which means that in your church, you guys have a, you all drink from one cup. This is, this is, um, uh, I think this is a tradition of man. I think that that's a tradition that's not necessary. <clears throat> yeah, so... I, I never in scripture, are we like commanded that when we repeat communion, everyone has to have the same cup. It seems to me that they were doing this as like early church feasts. It was like, it was like a whole meal going on. They obviously weren't all drinking from the same cup. Anyway, even if, even if there was potentially uh, one cup at the original, you know, when the, when it was just the 12, but you said to justify this, they use Joshua five. So Joshua 5, it seems they postponed circumcising until they were entering the land. But Joshua 5, and maybe they, maybe you could relate that to COVID, say, hey, they waited to circumcise till they were entering the land. But Joshua 5 seems to present this like it was a rebellion against God. Like these are just them being knuckleheads. They didn't circumcise even though they were supposed to. And God's like, before you come in, you guys need to get on the right foot with me. You need to be obeying the commands. I'm bringing you in to follow me to bring my laws with you. So you need to be obeying them. So Joshua 5 does not seem to me, unless I miss something, it doesn't seem to be presenting any justification for delaying obedience to God. 
On the other hand, I feel that communion can be done in very flexible fashions. And so like at our own church, we have these little communion, tiny things that are, they're annoying and you know, they don't taste good, but, but you, you, you have like a little, a little cup, like a little two ounce, one ounce cup of, of liquid there, probably grape, well, it's grape juice in our case. Um, and if you peel it back, the, just the lid in the lid is a tiny little wafer. So you have the wafer and you have that. It's not broken from one piece, which I like that symbolism, but I still think we can honor the Lord in this situation in these other ways. Um, how important is that right now? I don't think it's super important. I mean, if you've got somebody who's not infected and they they break bread, I mean, why can't your church just say, hey, let's, maybe I'm just being too reckless here. Let's, let's have one giant pitcher or cup or whatever. We pour the communion in there and we thank God for the communion. And then we have people who are masked and they've been tested and they pour it into individual cups and everybody partakes. It sounds like a church is so stuck on their tradition on how they do communion, how they and not the universal church for all time has, how they do communion, that they won't do it at all because they can't do it their way. That's the part that I would change is the method. So those are just my honest thoughts. Um, I'm not trying to, I know I'm, I'm like a bull in a china shop sometimes. <laughs> All right, number 10, Positive Vibes has a question. Hey, Pastor Mike, I'm an ex-Muslim and I became Christian in 2020. And I've secretly been Christian, but I still have to uh, have to do Muslim practices. Will God understand that I have to keep it secret? Oh, I got let me tell you a true story. I got a call one time from a Muslim, former Muslim. He's calling from England. And he called our church. I had already started doing YouTube stuff at the time. So maybe he saw something online, although my channel was like probably 2,000 subscribers, if that, you know. Um, <clears throat> so nobody knew me. But he called and he got me on the phone. I answered the phone. I was still working in the office at the time. And uh, and you can't call Hosanna and talk to me now. You <laughs> Go to my website if you, if you want to try to reach out to us. But... Um, which is biblethinker.org. But um, but yeah, I just can't even keep up with anything anymore. But the um, uh, the thing is, he was calling because he wanted to talk about Jesus. Like, I'm not even kidding. It was one of those rare, beautiful phone calls that he was like, I just want to talk about Jesus. Can we just talk about Jesus? Like, he wants to learn more about the gospel. He was looking for resources. He'd been raised in Islam, and he had all these questions about Jesus, but he didn't really know Jesus very well because he hadn't really read the Bible very much and um, didn't know how to understand it. He just had kind of Islamic propaganda about Christ. Why did he call me from England? And the truth is it was because he had asked his brothers, it's a true story, he'd asked his brothers about Jesus and he was telling him, I just want to know more about Jesus. Like he was just getting kind of obsessed with Jesus. And it bothered them because they felt like this was somehow a challenge to their Islamic faith. And his brothers beat him up like because he kept talking about Jesus. He wasn't even a Christian yet. He just kept talking about Jesus and he, they beat him up so bad that he was crippled, literally crippled, like can't walk up a flight of stairs, which is why in England, he called all the way to Bellflower, California to talk to somebody because he wanted to talk to somebody who was safe, who wasn't around him. Long story short, ended up giving him lots of resources, sending him a bunch of uh, books and stuff like that for from a former Muslim and... Uh, he ended up like holding up signs on street corners and telling people and he told his family and they were like, we're going to, we're going to take you out if you don't stop. And one of his brothers told him though, Hey, I'm proud of you. You know, if Jesus really has changed your life like that, then, then, then you shouldn't be ashamed of it. That was really interesting. I share that story for one reason. 
I understand that there could be serious and drastic consequences depending on how you how you handle yourself right now. This is why you secretly are a Christian and you've been doing Muslim practices because if people find out, like I know in Egypt, it's illegal to change your, on your paperwork, to change your religion from Islam to Christianity. It's actually illegal and you could be in a lot of trouble. I don't know all the right ways for you to handle this, but I do know that generally speaking, our biblical counsel is to have boldness and courage and to be open about our faith in Christ. And I, I want to encourage you to read the book of Acts. Read the book of Acts. They did go through suffering. They did go through hardship because they were open about their faith. And I don't know what pain you might go through. And I'm not I'm not trying to cause that pain. Look, I'm not the one persecuting you. I'm not the one doing any harm to you. I support you. You're my brother. You're my sister. But when you read the book of Acts, when you look at the life of Jesus, like please go look there. And, and all the direction, all the inspiration, it seems to be in the direction of being open and real and honest and immediately the cessation of any practices you see as not honoring Christ. Um, so praying towards Mecca, things like that, where you go, like, I can't do this. This does not honor Jesus Christ. Like, that seems to be where you draw the line. And I know at least for me, I hope I would have the courage to honor the Lord in those things, to speak up and to stand on the truth regardless of the of the cost. Because, like Jesus said, if any man follows me, he doesn't hate even his own life compared to me then he can't be my disciple. So what I'm going to encourage you to do is to stand. That requires more courage for you than it does for me. But you have Jesus as your example, not me. You have Paul, you have Peter. Look at look at the book of Acts. Look at how they responded to the persecution. Look at what, read First Peter and what he says about persecution and about the suffering that they were going through for standing up and proclaiming the name of Christ. You know, they were getting kicked out of their synagogues. I mean, it was persecution from, from uh, Jews. They were many Jews themselves, but there were other Jews that were persecuting them uh, in, in many cases. So yes, will God understand that I have to keep it a secret? I'm not sure you have to. It's just a cost. God help you. God give you wisdom. God give you courage. Read the scripture and follow Christ. Yeah, and we'll pray for you. Let's pray for positive vibes right now. Lord, we lift up our brother, our sister to you right now. We pray for courage. We pray that your Holy Spirit, like like in Acts, when Peter said to you, Lord, look on their threats. You see the threats they're making. Now give us courage. And you gave them the Holy Spirit that gave them boldness that they would be able to stand up and speak truth. We pray the same thing for, for him or her for positive vibes, that you would give this, this fellow believer courage by the power of your Holy Spirit and wisdom to be able to stand up and protection according to your will. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Away from here um, says this, has a question. Todd Friel of Wretched Radio, and I do know who Todd is, said the Bible doesn't teach that we can feel God's presence and the warm fuzzies that some people feel are only an emotional response when our minds receive biblical truths. Is this true? Um, I'm just thinking. So let me tackle this in pieces. The first piece is this. If the Bible doesn't teach, we can feel God's presence. If that's not a biblical teaching, does that mean we cannot feel God's presence? Well, no, it would just mean it's not a biblical thing that we're all supposed to hold to and believe. It would be a potential, but not something that should be a doctrine. So a church, if that's right, 
the Bible doesn't teach we can feel God's presence means we can't feel God's presence, then that would mean um, that that every church that um, that is talking about feeling God's presence is actually wrong. But if what I'm saying seems to me that one doesn't lead to the other, the Bible doesn't expressly talk about feeling God's presence. That doesn't mean you can't or nobody ever would, right? So so there's 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 a disconnect there. Um, but as a church, I wouldn't want to make, uh, this is something we should watch for in churches is churches that make minors into majors. So if your church's service and your church's method of doing ministry is primarily focused upon feeling God's, having God's felt presence, if that's the main focus, when it's not a main focus in scripture, which I would agree with, then you could, it could lead down strange places because what you end up doing is you end up trying to fabricate these feelings by changing the way the service functions, by changing the way the preaching is and all that, and it can end up being a little weird. Any church that majors on a minor tends to be a little a little problematic. It tends to lead to some domino effects. But does the Bible talk about feeling God's presence? And here's a question I don't think I've ever really like just sort of surveyed scripture thinking about this particular issue. So... Um, you know, in, in Adam and Eve, they hear the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. They're, they don't doesn't talk about a felt presence. Um, when some of the prophets go before God in His presence, um, there's an there's an impact it has in them. And you you could say, did they feel like Isaiah when he's like he sees the Lord of Hosts? This isn't a felt presence, but he sees the Lord in some sense. And then he feels this incredible awareness of his own sinfulness. Okay, so there, that's actually interesting. Um, the Holy Spirit, Jesus said, so that's not a felt presence, but it's interesting. The Holy Jesus said that the Holy Spirit would come and would convict people of sin, righteousness, and judgment to come. Now, does that speak of the Holy Spirit's presence creating a feeling of conviction? No, 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 no. It's actually different than that. This I'm just surveying scripture here with you. This would be different because this is the Holy Spirit giving information to non-believers who aren't filled with the spirit, right? They're not filled. So this isn't a, I'm, I'm feeling filled and I have these feelings rather, rather giving information to people to make them aware of sin of righteousness and of judgment to come. So it's informational that seems to cause hopefully feelings of, of, of guilt that would lead them to repentance and lead them to the joy and faith of Christ. Um, we do have, when I just uh, alluded to it earlier in Acts chapter four, Four. Um, I think it's Acts chapter four. Let me see if I can find it. This is where Peter is praying. Um, here we go. Four twenty three. <clears throat> After being threatened and told not to speak in the name of Jesus, is when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and earth and the sea and everything that's in them. And then he goes on and prays like, they're, they're, you hear their threats, Lord. Um, verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the palace, the, the palace, the place in which they were gathered was shaken and they were all filled with the spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So the Holy Spirit gave them boldness. Now, boldness is a feeling. Like I feel bold. Like I, I, it seems connected to my emotions in some respect. And so that came from the Holy Spirit filling them. Does that teach 
that whenever you have the Holy Spirit, you will have boldness. No, that would be going way too far. But there is a connection with being filled with the Spirit and then having something of a emotional response. Okay, I think that's kind of interesting. Um, I wonder... Hmm. Oh, well. I should do more study on this topic, but that's a really interesting question. Uh, at least one example there in Acts seems to be leaning towards the possibility of having the Holy Spirit who gives you a sense of emotions. Um, Paul says that when we don't know how to pray for as we ought, the Spirit intercedes for us with words that, that um, with groans that words cannot express. And so there's a connection between the things that I'm emotionally going through and the work of the Spirit, but that doesn't mean it backwards gives me feelings uh, when I have the Spirit. Um, but we do cry out, Abba, Father, by the Spirit. And he sent the Spirit of his of of of, um, of his Son into our hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. So there's a, th- that is a relational sense, a sense of relationship with God I get from the filling of the Spirit. So I'm open to the Holy Spirit providing you with emotional experiences, but not being a perfect, every time you have the Spirit working, you feel this way. Because I think other things can produce those feelings too. You can be bold because of sin. You can be zealous because of the Lord. You can be zealous because of your wickedness. You could have all that stuff. So warm fuzzies are an emotional response when our minds receive biblical truths. Um, they can be. They could also be the work of the Spirit. I just don't want to make it a major in my own fellowship. Probably went on too long on that. But number 12. The Xenomorph Man says, Hi, Mike. What is your view on the comparison between Jesus and the Tree of Life? It came to me in a dream, and I Googled it and found out it was exclusively an Orthodox belief. Have a good day. Well, um, I don't know uh, the Orthodox teaching on the comparison between Jesus and the Tree of Life. I'm open to biblical comparisons, but here's my rule. When it comes to this type of thing, allegory, analogy, um, typology, that's the term I usually use, when it comes to typology, here's my rule, and this is what I'll, I'll just give this to you and move on. Start with theology and then use typology to help see that theology throughout the scripture. You do not start with typology and then turn that into theology. Let me give you an example. There are, There's good reason for us to think the bronze serpent represents Jesus as he's lifted up on the cross. But we get our doctrine of what it means for Jesus to be on the cross from the clear teachings of scripture we don't, we don't go and find things and then develop new theology from typology. That's dangerous. So the, the example of this is like um, Catholic teachings on Mary. One of the best, in fact, the single best example of what I think is bad typology, you, you know, things where they get weird, is saying that they find Mariology in typology in the Old Testament. Mary is the Ark of the Covenant. Because she was carrying Jesus. She's the Ark of the Covenant, which is why she has to be sinless. Therefore, Mary is born without sin, perpetually a virgin, and never sinned in her life. Because she has to be the Ark of the Covenant. That's that's me starting with typology and then developing theology out of it. Like, dude, that's weird. Give me clear scriptural teaching that says Mary's without sin. Then you can try to build the typology. I have clear biblical teaching that says Jesus is the new Adam. This is Jesus is the one who dies on the cross for our sin. Like all this stuff about Jesus, I get from the clear teaching of scripture. Then I can find the typology that's that where I see how God has woven this story throughout the Old Testament. And I have a video on this. I'll recommend you guys on, um, I think 
the title of the video might be like Catholic Apologists Abuse Typology to Teach Mariology. I think that's the title of the video. You guys can check it out. I go into lots of detail, give lots of examples, even play clips from famous Catholic sources on that. Number 13, this is from Crystal White, who says, 11 years went by from the time Paul was saved till his first missionary journey. I always thought that was only a few months. What did Paul do in those 11 years other than fasting and praying? Um, Crystal, I'm not clear on the timeline there. 11 years? Um, I'm not clear on the timeline there. So I just honestly can't answer. I've looked at Paul's missionary. He has multiple missionary journeys. We all know that, or many of us know that. And I've looked at the timeline and constructed, you know, when you compare Galatians to the book of Acts um, and to uh, other sources where we're reading about these things. So I've looked at all that, but it was like it's not fresh on my mind at all. So I apologize, Crystal. I'm not going to be able to give you help on your answer. I'm sorry. Very sorry. Uh, number 14, Sun and Moon says, Hi, Job 14.5 says a person's days are determined, yet in Isaiah 38, God extends Hezekiah's life. It almost seems that with enough prayer and faith, we can persuade God to change his mind. Let's look at Job 14.5. I'll read starting verse four. Uh, Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? There is not one. Since his days are determined and the number of his months is with you and you've appointed his limits that he cannot pass. So um, this is from a very large section in Job, which is Job and his friends bantering back and forth. Except for Elihu, who starts like, I don't know, maybe chapter 26 or something like that, or maybe it was probably later than that. He starts, he starts way late in the book, Elihu starts. Except for Elihu, um, everybody else in the book of Job is rebuked later on by God as their words are being foolish. So what we have to look at with Job, say 14, is we see that Job is the one talking here. And we see his personality, we see what he's going through, we learn from that, but we're not necessarily digging out theological principles so a uh, man who's born of a woman is a few is few of days and full of trouble. Right? Is that just plain true? Well, not exactly, but it's how Job feels right now. He comes out like a flower and withers. He flees like a shadow and continues not. And do you not uh, do you open your eyes on such a one and bring me into judgment with you? Like no, does God say, "Hey, come here, Job. Let me talk with you. You can help plan out this person's life." Um, who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? There's not one since his days are determined and the number of his months is with you. So like, I kind of like have a hopeless life. This is what Job's getting at. Like my life is hopeless. Later on, Job himself says, I spoke words without knowledge. I was a fool. So I just wouldn't take Job 14.5 as giving you this full scope, full orbed understanding of God's sovereignty and man's free will or anything like that. Um, in Hezekiah, we do have an example where God says to Hezekiah, you're going to die. Hezekiah prays and prays and prays and God grants him an extended life. And it seems to go kind of sour in the end. Um, and you could try to draw your applications there. You say, it seems like with prayer and faith, we can persuade God to change his mind. Sort of. Here's my view on this. I know it sounds complex, but here's like my understanding and I'll move quick because we're going so far on time today. Um, I guess we're doing normal on time, <laughs> but this always happens towards the end. So um, the, uh, the the idea is this, that God has what he knows he'll do in the end, but what he knows he will do involves what he knows you will do. And so there he is, Hezekiah, you're going to die. God knows there's going to be prayers and that he's going to answer those prayers, but just because he knows it doesn't mean he's not going to live it out. And you might think, oh, well, he's, so he's playing a game with us? No, he's actually having a relationship with us. So, like, imagine you tell your kid, 
hey, you want to go out for your birthday? And you already know what they want. Like when I was a kid, we would go out for um, my birthday and I got to pick the restaurant. So one time I got to pick. And every time I picked Sizzler. Because even though now as an adult, I think Sizzler is kind of, yeah. I loved it when I was a kid. And they knew, Mike, it's your birthday. Where do you want to go? They knew I was going to pick Sizzler. But there was something in the process of me getting the option. And then me asking, Sizzler? And them saying, okay, we'll go to Sizzler. That made me happy. And it was relational with us. So in a sense, like God knows what we're going to pray. But there's a relational thing happening when we do pray it. Um, so yes, uh, you know, from God's ultimate perspective, Hezekiah, he knows exactly how many days he'll live. And they're all, God's got a plan for all of them. But that plan includes those moments of interaction where if we hadn't done this, he wouldn't have done that. And so we are really relating with God. He's really taking action. He just knows it all ahead of time. That's my shortest possible answer on that one. Audrey Addison says, we know that we will eventually gain glorified bodies, but about glorified, what about glorified minds? Will someone who suffers from a mental disorder like Down syndrome be healed? Um, I believe the answer to that is yes. So part of the reason is because I think Down syndrome is a, is a symptom of the fall. Down syndrome, I would include, along with cancer or, or dementia, like later on in life, things like that, as part of what's wrong with reality. This is not how we're supposed to be. This is how we are in the midst of the fall, in the midst of the sufferings. Now, Jesus, he restores all of creation. He's going he's gonna to make things not just as if there was no fall, but better than before. Right? It's not just restored to before, but it's better than before. And we have a glorified body because we, because the body we have now, the theology of this is the body you have now is not fit for, it's a body of corruption and is not fit for eternity and glory. So you will have a body of incorruption that is fit for eternal glory. Down syndrome, it seems to me, is, a, is, is something that would be fixed in the glorified body. Here's a, a scripture that is interesting. Um... Let me see. 1 Corinthians 13, 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall full, know fully, even as, I, even as I've been fully known. <clears throat> There's a knowledge that is accessible to us in that exalted final state. This is going to be, this is a debated passage amongst cessationists, but I, I take it to mean um, when, when, we, when we're in that glorified state. So I'm going to be knowing as I'm known. Now, God knows me pretty well. And it's saying that my mental abilities will be exalted, but not just knowing facts and numbers, but the ability to even relate with God on a much deeper level is going to be there. So, so the love is going to be elevated. Um, those who have lower capacities also miss out on pieces of a relationship that they might be able to have otherwise if they had more capacity. So I, I think there's a case that can be made there for knowing, uh, having our minds glorified, both in the redemption of creation and in specifically, in order for me to know as I'm known, I'd have to have an expanded mental capacity. <clears throat> Giant Mushroom Tree says, I struggle with emotional emptiness, abandonment issues, and having low self-worth. This makes my walk hard because my cup is always empty. God won't answer my prayers. Any advice? <sighs> yeah. Uh, Giant Mushroom Tree, I don't know you. I have to just guess at a couple things here, so forgive me if I'm off base at all. It's not my intention. But I also don't like pat advice that doesn't help people. 
<clears throat> I've seen enough of that. I've seen the kind of advice where people hear me saying this to you. They would go, oh, good answer, Mike, good answer. And you'd be like, thanks. No, I didn't help at all. So I'm interested in what might actually help. So let me take some guesses, fill in your background info in my head a little bit, and I'll suggest a couple things. Um, one of the biggest issues for, for, I think, for people who deal with like emotional emptiness, abandonment issues, low self-worth, um, believing that God's not answering your prayer, that kind of thing is, is in the faith category. Uh, but not maybe not like you think. I'm not saying you lack faith. You're just not having enough faith. You'd feel better if you believed more. I'm not really, I don't mean that. Sometimes, okay. I remember thinking that after I sinned when I was younger, that I was like, my relationship with God was broken. And I, I kind of had to live good for a few days or a week or whatever before we were okay again. And during that time where I felt like it was broken, I didn't want to pray. I, I felt uncomfortable praying. I felt ashamed in praying and all that. I wondered if God still loved me. I genuinely did. I was like, does he still love me? And then I would go to church. There'd be a time of worship. And I just felt like God loved me. And I, I don't know there was the teaching or reading the word or the worship time. And I just was like, God, you do love me. And I felt relieved. And I felt like now I can pray to you. All of that was all in my head. God loved me the whole time. And what changed it for me was when I got to, and I'm giving this story for a reason, but when I got to scripture that told me that, and it sunk in so hard, but it stuck with me forever, that the cross is God's message that he still loves me, constantly loves me. We know he loves us because he gave his son to die for us. And that love is constant. He knew all your sin from the beginning. When I realized this, this was a theological fact of reality, that God's love for me is continually, is, 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 is continual and is, is constant. And that in Christ, that as, as, I, as I have Christ, I have God's love for me. And he gives his spirit to me. He gave his son to die for me. And any time after that, I started to doubt, does God really care about me? Does he really love me? Maybe because of my own issues, maybe because of my own family issues, not feeling loved, not feeling cared for, you know, in the past. Um, and having major problems. Stuff I don't talk about too much because I don't want to embarrass my family members. I love them and I don't want to get into the stories. But let's just say I get it. Um, but... Um, but when I, when I go through that stuff, I go, but I have this anchor. I know God loves me because his word tells me he does. And this is where faith comes in. Because faith says, I don't feel like you love me, but I know you love me. So I'm going to choose to believe that and trust you. What I see a lot of times, people who deal with low self-worth, it's not that they haven't been told the right things. It's that they don't trust those things. They think because I don't, feel like I'm loved, therefore I'm not. But that's a way of believing your own heart, your own admittedly stupid heart, <laughs> over the fact of God's word and the demonstration of his love in the cross of Christ. You're believing your emotional fears and it's you that's causing your whole issue. Now maybe those emotional fears have been fed into through trauma and suffering of the past, but can you allow the truth of God's love through the cross of Christ to tell you this is the constant love of God for you? This is the value that he placed in you. It wasn't in you to start, but he placed in you as he purchased you and bought you and he put the blood of Christ on you so you have Christ's righteousness and you're his. What I'm saying is when you struggle with emotional emptiness, abandonment issues, low self-worth, thinking that God doesn't hear your prayers, these things are answered by the clear teachings of scripture and there's a battle to just believe what God has said and to tell yourself, 
So what if my emotions don't agree? I'm choosing to trust this anyways. That to me is real actionable and real helpful advice, I think. And I hope that it blesses you. It's bl it blesses me. So. Thomas Brownlee says, hey, Mike, can you better explain Luke 1433 where Jesus tells the crowd? So then none of you can be my disciples who does not give up all his own possessions. Let's go to Luke 1433. And we'll back up a bit so we can get more context. Um, now, great crowds accompanied him and he turned to some of them and said, this is great because this is a, a, another example of Jesus like shrinking his own audience. Jesus did things that would like make modern churches PR firms like really freak out, right? He does things that shrink his own audience because he wants authentic discipleship. Um, he says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children, we read this earlier, and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he can't be my disciple. Now that's in context, isn't it? The context is choosing Christ over all other things. Because following Christ means you're going to love people more. You'll love your mom and your sister. You'll love them more. It's just that Jesus will be king and not them. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to be able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build what he was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate, whether he's able to with 10,000 men to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So this is, this is um, <clears throat> Jesus saying, here's the cost of following me. I want you to think about this before you try this task. We get saved for free, but following Jesus has a cost. It doesn't, you're not earning salvation through that cost, but rather you're making a choice and that choice means Jesus over all else. So he concludes it all, all that he said by saying, so there are, therefore any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Now, the, the way your question was worded in out of context, it sounded kind of like you had to um, sell all your stuff and give it to the poor, but that's not the context. So you put, um, and you're probably just quoting from a different version, uh, Thomas Brown, that you said, so then none of you can be my disciples who does not give up all his own possessions. Own pos it, now, it sounds like these are financial possessions. You give up all your own possessions. Let me see if there's an, another translation that's similar to that. Um, 1333. Yeah, that's the NASB. Not give up all his own possessions. And the say the NIV puts it this way. I was reading ESV earlier. Uh, in the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Okay, New King James. Let's uh, let's look at this one too. <clears throat> so likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Okay, forsaking all he has. So only the NASB kind of makes it sound like it's giving up your possessions is more of a financial thing. I think when you look at what Jesus says here in context of the whole paragraph, the cost of discipleship, he's like mothers, father, wife, children, brother, sister, and your own life and go take up a cross, that's what you got to be able to give up to follow me. The, the thing is, I am over everything in your life. That's the point. Now, later on, as much as Jesus says you have to hate your wife, yet yet Jesus, you know, through the apostles is teaching us, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. So it's only in the context of Choosing between them and Jesus, I always pick Jesus because he's my Lord. So that that's all I think that that passage is getting at. 
Jesus is Lord over all you have. I don't think it's about um, <clears throat> all of us being in, being uh, in poverty, selling all we have. I think that's actually unwise if everyone does that. Searching Servant has a question. What is your understanding of 2 Thessalonians 7, uh, 2.15? Excuse me. 2 Thessalonians 2.15. As many Orthodox Christians point to this as evidence of the legitimacy of traditions that are not explicitly written in Scripture. Oh, I like when we talk about this one. 2 Thessalonians 2.15. Um, so then, let me read it to you guys. Now remember, okay, look, back up. Here's how it comes up. You're talking to, say, usually for me as a Roman Catholic, uh, it could be an Orthodox person here. You're talking to somebody, when we say Orthodox, we mean Eastern Orthodox. We don't just mean they hold to Orthodox Christian beliefs. That's a different use of the term. So you're talking to them and and they're like, I have I have the apostolic traditions that you don't have that are that are not written in the Bible, but they're but they're given from the apostles. And they say, well, look, we're supposed to hold scripture. I go, we're supposed to hold scripture, man. I, I'm going to let scripture guide me and be my ultimate, you know, decider about what I'm going to believe. No, you're missing it. Even Paul said this. Look at what Paul said. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. And boom, like they, they, they drop the microphone and they walk away basically because it's like, dude, the Bible is telling you. You shouldn't have sola scriptura. You need the traditions too. And here we have our traditions. Now, the problem here is an equivocation. Uh, equivocation, for those anybody who might not know, um, is using the same word to mean different things in an argument. So if the argument goes, I'm, I'm Orthodox or I'm Catholic, and I have these traditions not in the Bible, you should believe these traditions and the Bible. And you say, I have the Bible and not those traditions because I'm going to stick to what the apostles gave us from the New Testament. And they say... But we see even Paul telling us to, to follow the traditions. But the word tradition doesn't mean the same thing anymore. Because when Paul uses it, first off, Eastern Orthodox traditions don't exist yet. Many of them. Roman Catholic traditions, the vast majority, do not exist yet. They simply don't historically exist yet. So they're not apostolic to start with. They're church traditions, but they're not apostolic from the apostles. But let's look at the context. Paul says, Brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that were taught to us, taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Paul is not using the word tradition to mean something other than scripture. Paul is using the word tradition to refer to apostolic teaching, period. And, and there is no debate going on about non-written apostolic traditions. There's no debate going on. He says, hold fast to the things the apostles taught you. That's all this verse is saying. And whether we said it in your presence or we gave you a letter from one of us true apostles and it's there, you're going to hold fast to it. So the only way this could apply is if, and this is a big giant if, if you can show me there's a tradition that truly and genuinely traces back to the apostles and I'm going to add was originally taught by them and not some later deviation from things they taught, which Paul warned about, even if we or an angel from heaven comes preaching a different gospel to you, don't receive it. So if it's truly from the apostles and not a deviation from the things that they taught early on, then I'll receive it. And that's where things fall apart because they're going to go to the church fathers and they're going to say, well, this church father says what I like and this church father says what I like, but consistently the Orthodox and in my experience more often Roman Catholic teachings, they will often have these very edited versions of church fathers, whether they're using them out of context or they're using a minority of the church fathers here, a majority of the church fathers there. They'll be like, we have a majority of the church fathers that agree with us here. And I'll go, oh, so you need a majority of the church fathers, but you have this other doctrine 
that you don't have a majority of the church fathers for. What about that one? Oh, that one counts because we tell you it counts. See, there's no, it's like there's no rules. It's like we have these things we believe and we just tell you they came from the apostles. Yeah, I'm not really favorable to that. Um, so yeah, the traditions that were taught by Paul, the apostles, by them, period, end of story, which included the written word. This is, this is really in context. Second Thessalonians is saying, stand firm and hold fast to the traditions that include his written, his written letters, which means that if I have biblical warrant, this is important, biblical warrant for disagreeing with Orthodox or Roman Catholic teachings, then I should do that because Paul always acts like normal pew Christians, normal Christians have the authority to say, I'm going to stand, or I should say they, they, um, their authority is the scripture and they could say, I'm going to stand on what we know the apostles gave us, not what you say you heard from down through the centuries stuff. What we know came from them. We're going to stand on that and we're going to disagree with any authority. So that would actually disagree with the Roman or uh, perhaps Eastern Orthodox positions on that. Yeah, it's just the word tradition, equivocation on that word. Number 19 with Stephen with Passenger Ministries says, How is Isaiah 52 and 53 evidence for the Bible? If most of the stuff in there is theology and not testable historically. Thanks. Love your videos. Um, so. Um, I, okay. So Psalm 22 is <clears throat> a great passage for prophecy about the cross. Historically speaking, it gives tons. I mean, more than anybody seems to realize it gives specific details, not just about the cross, but about the events after the cross like a bunch of Gentiles around the world worshiping the God of Israel because of this thing. Um, that's Psalm 22. Isaiah 52 and 53, like you say, Stephen, is very theological in nature. How does that give evidence? Um, well, I would say it gives evidence in a couple ways. Um, though it's different. Though I would, I would lean towards Psalm 22 or I would go to like other more historical passages to build a bridge with a non-believer. But Isaiah 52 and 53 is still very powerful. It gives evidence towards something that is a neglected apologetics uh, argument, which is the unity of the Bible. You see, if the New Testament, if the theology and the details about Jesus really match this ancient prophecy, and, it and here's the crazy thing, it wasn't even what the Jews were looking for, but you can show that it was genuinely there and then it seems to have just happened, that's evidence that there's a mind behind the works of Christ and behind his, him being on the cross, and that mind is God himself. That's actually pretty strong evidence. It's difficult to make that argument in like sort of a syllogism, but what you do is you try to show Isaiah 52 and 53 show distance between the, the Jewish people, even the disciples of Jesus, between them and the theology of what Jesus was doing, which was embedded in Isaiah 52 and 53. And you show that then, then where is this theology coming from? Right? Cause it, it, it seems to happen. What, what Jesus does on the cross does happen. And it seems to be very consistent with that theology. So you're just trying to, and here's where I want to build a cum cumulative case for the unity of the Bible. And want to show over and over again, that this is like, there's a mind behind the text of scripture. That is not just the mind of the human authors in the scripture. There's one mind who's pulling the puppet strings of the whole thing, who's like orchestrating and designing and putting all this stuff together just so. So I, I think it's evidence in that sense. Also, there are many people who do already think that the Bible is true, at least the Old Testament. 
there are those who are many Jewish people who believe that the Old Testament is true. And when they see that this Jesus, who they've been told was not the Messiah, was prophesied in Isaiah 52 and 53, that's very powerful for bringing them to Christ. There's lots of people who at least have like this kind of superstitious sort of perspective of the Bible and Jesus and showing them something like Isaiah 52 and 3 can drive them to Christ. It can it can open the door and you tell them, look, this was written and their minds, even if they don't have a syllogism, their minds can put it together. Like this is not a, this is not a coincidence. Now some would respond. Here's the pushback from this more skeptical community. Mike, the, the, uh, the gospel authors made the story of Jesus look like Isaiah 53 on purpose. This was like intentional. They're fabricating it. They're doing it after the fact. Here's the problem. They don't have evidence for this. It's just an assumption. Jesus is dying. His words, when he talks about, like, so some of the most historically reliable, according to even, even skeptical historians, historically reliable statements of Jesus in the Gospels are son of man statements where he's like, the son of man will do this and that. And it's in those statements where he's invoking the imagery of Isaiah 53. This has led some scholars to support the idea that um, it was after Jesus died on the cross that they looked, not before, it wasn't before, it wasn't fabricated. It's not that they, then their genius figured it out, but it was after Jesus died on the cross that the disciples looked back and they saw Isaiah 53 and were like, that was that. And they're actually getting their theology from the fulfillment of the, of the prophecy. So anyway, there, there's a couple things. Um, when you say it's not testable historically, I mean, in, in a sense it is, um, but it's just theological. <laughs> All right, let's look at uh, number... 20. Last question. Lil McNick says, what is or does your person personal time with God look like, Mike? How do you do, how do you differentiate it from your study time? Um, I mean, I, I try to merge them in a sense. I don't want to have them like these, this cold difference between my studying and my walk. Um, so I try to have both, but usually like personal time with God, I, I mean, <laughs> This is I'm praying and studying and reading the word. I mean, that's personal time with the Lord too. So I don't really know what to tell you there. I'm blessed in that what I do for a living has me studying scriptures and preparing Bible studies and, and the benefits that come with that. But um, but yeah, I hesitate to answer questions like this for a couple of reasons though, before without giving you guys a bunch of details. Because I don't want to be the standard by which you judge yourselves. I don't think that's wise for several reasons. I also don't want to be like trying to like boost myself up by trying to prove my spirituality to others. I think that's weird and it's a scary place for me to go. As soon as I step into that realm, I feel like that's a dangerous place to be. So, I mean, I could tell like, oh, I'll, I'll go on a walk and I'll pray on a walk. I'll, I'll just stop what I'm doing and I'll, I'll go pick up my guitar and worship and stuff like that. But, but here's where I'm like tempted to paint a picture of me like like seeking the Lord and praying and just being this godly man and all this. And truth is, you probably, a lot of you probably think of too highly of me to start with and I'm just not going to feed into that. <laughs> so um, most likely, Lil Nick Nick, my personal time with God looks just like yours, most likely. I just stop what I'm doing, other things, and I seek the Lord and I pray. Maybe I get on my knees. Maybe I go on a walk. Maybe I, since I, I do music, I, I'll pull a guitar out and, and involve that. I just think... Um, I want to avoid, you know, getting, I get, I get questions like how many, how many hours do you spend reading the Bible? How much time do you spend praying? Things like that. And I'm like, I don't think this is healthy. I'm not going to go down that road. So that's going to be it for you guys. Um, I, I will have, um, this Monday, I'm going to have a, 
um, of the next video for the Mark series coming out, and we're approaching the end of the Gospel of Mark. But then for three Mondays in a row, I don't intend to do a Monday teaching. Three in a row, no Monday teachings. That's the intention. Um, I will still have videos on my channel, just not the Monday video. After that, the, the we're going to finish the Mark series, and then I'm going to take another break where I'm going to stop everything I'm doing. Well, not everything else to do the Friday Q&A. And I'm going to study in detail the topic of women in ministry. I'm going to do like a whole research project on it. I don't know if it's going to take weeks or, or over a month or something. We'll see. We'll see. I'm just going to get deep into it and produce a very long, thorough teaching on the topic. Hopefully, it'll be a blessing. Pray for me that God will give me wisdom as I do that. And thank you guys for your questions, for joining, for the Q&A. Sorry for the glitch the internet issue earlier. I'm going to have to go back and edit this video. So it's going to take a while to get the timestamps up if you're waiting for that. Um, yeah, that's about it. Lord bless you. Thanks.